Hello everyone and welcome to the Nationalists Academy. My names are Cole, Uber, and Thomas, but <laughs> I have summoned two nameless phantoms who may take one of my names for their power summoning rituals. Which names would you two prefer? Um, I'll take Thomas. A bit partial to Uber. Alright, very good. My names are now bequeathed to you. In the Nationalist Review, we are a woke folk podcast that focuses on literature and generalized philosophy. If you're into that, you're in the right place. We each are assigned, or we read a book every single week. We are going to start out each kind of reviewing and talking about our particular books. Afterwards, we are going to talk about the philosophical themes in the books, and even talk about if we think they're right or wrong thing, and other anything that comes to mind. We are not reviewing these books in the assumption that we're going to tell you whether you should or should not read these books. If if we don't think they're worth reading, we're not going to review them in the first place. Now, <laughs> my, my book review is The Mysterious Stranger and Other Stories by Mark Twain. I believe Uber read the Bhagavad Gita, and Thomas, you read, what was it, Something of a White Man? Once Upon a White Man, a memoir of war and peace in Africa by Graham Atkins. Once Upon a White Man, of of course. And <laughs> I, who, which of us do you, which of us want to go first? I'm fine with going first, but do either of you want to? How about you lead the way? All right. For The Mysterious Stranger and Other Stories by Mark Twain, I, I'm just going to kind of separate because, of course, there are the other stories. There's kind of three little... um fables that I absolutely love Mark Mark Twain in terms of his um, necessary contribution to Americana literature and just of course being an American white nationalist myself I, I love the American culture and everything like that and you know respecting our ancestors and such and I'll, I'm just gonna kind of separate the main story from these other stories and the three other stories are a fable, a, um, I'm not even sure if it's true or not, but a story about a burglar alarm, and the third is a story about turkey hunting. And these are absolutely, you know, crisp Americana when you read it. It's, you know, the kind of Huckleberry Finn stuff that you absolutely know and, obs and love the culture so that just, in it, it just screams American. Now, the turkey... The turkey and the fable are less interesting ones. The fable basically revolves around an artist creates a painting and sets it up in a way that that you see it by looking into a mirror that you're... And, and as he puts it, now the painting's beauty is doubled and the house cat is, as long with all the other animals, they're anthropomorphized and personified. And the house cat just, you know, is telling all the other animals about how great this painting is, this wondrous flat thing that you look into a hole and you see. And But the problem is, at first they're very skeptical, and, you know, it, and Mark Twain is kind of subtle, not really, but subtle in this, that the ass is the first one to be skeptical and saying, I've never seen such a beautiful flat thing that needs so many words to say something so simple as beauty, so I don't believe it's real. And so the king of the animals, the elephant, says, why don't you go and look at it yourself and tell if it's, it's real? But so, because the ass is ignorant, he goes and he stands in between the painting and the mirror, and when he looks into it, he sees nothing but an ass. He comes back and says, 
The cat lied to all of us. All that was in the... All that was in the... He doesn't say a mirror. They call it a hole in the wall. All that was in the hole in the wall was an ass. It was mighty <laughs> handsome and friendly. I even touched noses with it, but there was no flat thing. The cat is a filthy liar. And so it goes on. One of the animals says, Huh, well, this is weird. The cat never lied to us before. I will check. Two witnesses is obviously better than a single witness. So the... I... I forget which one next. It doesn't really matter. Let's just say the moose. So the moose goes and he looks into the to the mirror and he says, both the cat and the ass lied. All that was in there was a moose. And so it goes on with each of the animals. And the whole um, moral behind this fable is that when you when you look at something and he, I think he uses specifically art and, and literature, that you can get whatever you want out of art and literature as long as you unconsciously put yourself in between yourself and the literature in the lens of your mind. And it, it's a nice little story. If um, I actually... Um, I highly recommend the audiobook, The Mysterious Stranger and Other, Strang Other Strangers, Other Stories by Ted DeLorem. He... In the very beginning, it's kind of, um... Bland's not the right word, but he's less enthusiastic, but as he gets on, he gives the characters voices and everything, and he also does a very good job with these, um... with the fable and other stories at the end. He's really into it by then, so if you just want to hear the other stories, which is only, like, maybe a 20-minute listen to, you just need to listen to, um... the 12th segment, or chapter 12, as he puts it. Now, the second story that, um... is the second... Um, less important one. I'm going to get into my favorite one at the very end of this little part about the other stories. The second one is about him hunting turkeys. He talks about, you know, in his youth, his, um, his brothers and his father would hunt turkeys and they were skilled marksmen who, when you, do when you dog, a um, dog a squirrel up a tree, it'll lie flat on the branch and you see its little ears poking out, and the hunter knows where to shoot just through the branch that it skims his nose and doesn't kill him, and, and he's taken out with, you know, with skill and dignity. And at, at the very beginning of this um, little story, it's set up this notion of skill and dignity with hunting. And so it talks about him with a, a single-barreled, you know, pump-action shotgun hunting a turkey. He t And another theme about this little kind of story is, is nature at the same time both gives all, all her children, as he puts it, he's referring to animals, both the means to save itself and also to damn itself. By, by the turkey, it has... A it has a perfect turkey call within its own self by blowing through the thigh bone in the right way. The turkey call is produced with such an astounding similarity that no other turkey can differentiate it. So in this way, it damns itself. But in the same way, nature gives it a way to save itself. So when the turkey is... The turkey... Ba and it basically goes through the story of he's chasing the turkey and the turkey is faking it's acting like it's lame like it's limp and injured to try to ruse him along to draw it away from her chicks and so it would purposely wait for him whenever he got tired and whenever he would get closer it would just be just a hand a hand length out of reach of of his grasp because he didn't want to just blow it up with a shotgun because 
When he tried, the turkey stood there, as he put it, the turkey stood proud before me, seemingly aware that I wasn't such a, a good shot, and I was ashamed to try to show off my marksmanship, so I resumed the act of ca catching the smother turkey. And it, it's basically a very nice little story that's um, kind of plays on these um, ideas of foresty fash and everything like that and getting back to nature. But the third other story that I really love and my absolute favorite phrase comes from this, I've had enough of that kind of pie. I, I love that turn of, of phrase that you get sometimes from these classic writers and things like this. But the basic story is... Mark Twain is sitting in a in a train traveling and talking with a fellow passenger. I forget what what his na he named him. I think it was something kind of Scottish like Mick, like Mick Masterson or something like that. But he's talking about an incident where he built his manor and they had a little bit of money left over. So the wife compromised in quotes with the husband to install a burglar alarm. Now, when me and the wife come to a compromise, this usually means that whatever she wants gets done and whatever I want is forgotten and it's called a compromise. So, they invest in a burglar alarm, but the, but the very next day, he finds a burglar in the second story. He was, a, he was alarmed to this, not by the alarm, but because his wife smelled tobacco smoke and sent... I'm gonna kind of, I'm kind of gonna go in the character of him telling it. And so the wife sent me to go and investigate. I came down, gun in hand, and found the burglar smoking on the second story. My first inclination was to smack him over the head with the pool cue, but because he was in between me and the pool cue rack, I, I inclined to disregard this and go with the second option. I said, sir, we do not allow smoking in this room, and why are you in this room in the first place without sounding the burglar alarm? The burglar replied back to me, My apologies, sir. If I knew there was a burglar alarm, I would indeed have rung it. Please do not tell my parents, because they are getting old and quite feeble and would be very distraught to learn that their son did not ring the proper burglar alarm in accordance <laughs> with manner. And in... in and, he, and he also goes goes on, and on the issue of smoking, I have been in many houses before, and the issue of my smoking was not brought up. And so the the man replies, well, sir, if that if you have done this in many other houses before, I cannot I cannot forbid you in mine. However, I think it is a sign of the declining times when a privilege given to a burglar would not be allowed to a pope. And so he says... <laughs> And so he's, he basically says, I, I, I took back my belongings from the burglar, which was some tinware he had mistaken for silver in the, in the dark, at the pawnbroker's rate, minus 10% for advertising fees. I ushered him to the door and I asked, how did you get past the burglar alarm? He said, I just came in through a second story window. Now, later, I rung up the man from New York who installed my burglar alarm, and he said that there was no alarm on the second story. Now, if one is going to be armored, why would one be armored from the legs down? One might not wear any armor at all. 
So I paid to have him come back down and install another burglar alarm on the second story for double the price of the original and his fees of travel. I installed a new burglar alarm. A month later, we had in been enjoying a I forget what he how he puts it, but he says an air of peace within the household. However, that night I went up to the third story and found another burglar. He had been pilfering and I forget the valuables he mentioned, but again I said, "Sir, how could you have entered without ringing the burglar alarm?" He said, I'm quite sorry I did not ring the burglar alarm. I was told there might be one in the area, but I was not sure of the house. I made sure to look for a house that I believe did not have a burglar alarm, but I again, I, again, I am quite sorry for my mistake. How did you get into my house? Well, I used the ladder out in your shed to climb up to the third story window. I pawned the the stolen merchandise from him minus the 10% advertising free and another 5% <laughs> for use of my ladder and sent him off on his way. And the story basically goes on about these hilarious, ridiculous situations about he goes and he calls the burglar alarm installer again to install on the third story. And then he says, the alarm worked well for a while, but then the false alarm started happening. There was a large board that told you where the burglar alarm was going off. For every single room in the house, there was a big, huge switch of boards. Now, when that alarm goes off, it goes off. And this alarm is positioned right above mine and the missus's bed. And so, when the alarm goes off at nearly three in the morning, when it wakes you up, it wakes you up whole right. You are awake for a solid 18 hours of the most wide awakeness you have ever experienced. <laughs> and, he, and he goes on about his absolute frustrations with this burglar alarm, and in the end, and in the end, first, well, there's two hilarious situations that happen near the end. One is they find out that, that a whole den of burglars are basically living in all the rooms of their houses because the police would never su suspect the most notoriously well well protected house being filled with burglars and then not having <laughs> any guests to fill their rooms and finally at the very end when they go off for summer vacation and the burglar alarm people promise to install the most sophisticated burglar alarm installed in the United States with with like thousands of dollars worth of copper wire gongs bells and springs they come back at the end of the summer and it turns out that the install installation people also went on their summer break and while they were gone the burglars came and stole every bit of the burglar along <laughs> bells gongs whistles the whole thing in the end i told mrs that was mick it was mick williams that was the end i told mick mrs mick williams i've had enough of that kind of pie i then bought a dog to be my guard and shot the dog and that is all i have to say on that good day mr twain <laughs> I absolutely love that story. I find it just absolutely hilarious. But getting into the the main part of the story, the mysterious stranger, you can look at this in a in a in a few different ways. The kind of background of this is it was never a published book of his. He began writing it and from what I understood he wrote about like 
seven-eighths of the entire book, and the ending is what was, um... It had to be kind of, like, cobbled together from what they believed he was going to end it like, and I think that's kind of... It's kind of the weakest part if you look at it in a particular interpretation, but the way that I look at it, I think, justifies it. Now, it is set in a very rural town in Austria, and it paints the the this um, the landscape and the village absolutely beautifully. And the thing is, this is during the... Um, it's not quite during World War One. It's and it's past the Middle Ages for a time of reference. I think it was in... I think the time this is set is like the late 1600s or so, and it sets it as a very Christian village, and the thing is, they get visited by, of course, as, it put, as it's put, a mysterious stranger. It's a person who, who is a young boy like them, and he does miraculous things. He can produce fire without need of flint and tinder, and as one of the first things he does is he puts water into a, a cup made of a leaf and blew on it and threw it out, and it was ice, and it was, you know, very charming and everything like that, and they discover that he is he is an angel. He's one of, you know, God's, you know, cher like, um, seraphim and everything like that, and, and here's kind of the main point that like, throws people, including readers, kind of for a loop. When he introduces himself, when they ask him, well, what's your name, he replies, Satan. And, of course, these little Austrian kids are freaked out by this, and and they're like, are you the Satan? And he's like, no, I was just named after my uncle, as you put it in your human lineage terms and everything like that and it goes and it goes very nicely into kind of a um a mythos of angels of how how old they are how old they age and everything like that and their interaction with time and everything like that and i think it's very well done for someone in mark twain's time and this kind of brings up this um this beginning theme of um of things it's not what the it's not the the very overdone theme of things are not what they seem, but it's the very it's it's a similar theme that is things that you initially believe aren't always you know true or what they seem or in this case um, offensive and repulsive and basically it goes through these series of Satan like kind of messing with everyone, but he's doing it in a way that's kind of very critical of what he calls the moral sense. He views animals as much as he puts it higher beings than humanity, because humans are degraded by the moral sense. As he puts it, humans, they have the ability to choose right from wrong, and nine times out of ten, the man chooses wrong. There should be no no wrong and everything like this and he and it kind of goes through the workings of this inner village of um kind of like the internal town politics because everything is governed by um intense christianity and everything like that and one of the themes that i'd like to interpret from this is it's a, the whole entire story it's a criticism of of superstition versus organized religion versus personal religion and objective truth. And it it goes into this because the people are, you know, it's 16th century Austria. They're very superstitious. They 
they believe in witch hunting during these things. They believe in, you know, um, in um, incantations and sorceries, and you'll be protected from witches as long as you have your your rose your rosary beads and crucifix on you and every thing like that. And I think it does it very well. It just absolutely kind of completely. It's not a debunking, but it's a very good. Um, almost Nietzschean-style criticism of superstition. And it also criticizes organized religion in the next step, because it gets into the topic of um, of witch hunting. It gets into this topic of the... The Pope has basically one of the, pre, one of the priests in the story, and kind of coincidentally enough, maybe Mark Twain was a prophet, but there are two priests in this village. One is Father Peter, and the other is Father Adolf. And um, Father Peter is, he's been excommunicated because his his um, basic crime is he said that God was all love and he would find a way to save all his poor children. As they put it, this was a horrible thing to say, but the, the Pope would not go so far as to excommunicate Father Peter on just the the testimony of a single witness, so he's been permanently put on temporary leave and he's having you know, monetary troubles, and one of the things that, um, that, um, Satan does is he just kind of, you know, gives him a bag of gold ducats as the currency of the time is to help him pay for his house and everything like that, but, but the astrologer, his enemy, the witness that, that said this, um, he, he basically tries to frame him and says that, that, um, Father Peter stole the, um, the gold ducats from him and everything like that. And it's an absolute wonderful tale, even if you're in it just for the the fiction, the story building, and everything like that. So it gets into this criticism of organized religion this way, and it does a very good job commentating on the human condition, and especially in relation to organized re religion. He, One of the things he talks about is that only... I think he said a, only a small handful of people were ever even enthused and um, believed in the hunting and killing of witches in the first place. However, the human race are, are and he basically says, the human race are all sheep. An eventual t cur curious thing will happen when, even though critics will come against an idea, whether it be a war or the stoning of witches, one by one, and, and eventually the critics will be stoned off of their platforms. They'll be harassed and harangued by the very people who were praising them before, and even in, even secretly in their hearts, still agree with the critic. However, they keep a watchful eye on how others are looking upon them, for they know that if they don't go along with what they believe, that they'll be accused in turn. And he... And one of the situations in which this is done is one of the boys in the story, one of their, the main characters, during a, a stoning and hanging of a witch, he was one of the ones who threw, threw a stone, even though he hated it, and, you know, Satan laughed, who appears as, you know, just a normal boy to everyone else, because in the thing, Satan is almost... And I don't want to just say this as a kind of blaspheming thing, but that gets into the themes of the book. In the book, Satan is almost like omnipotent. He reads minds, he can do pretty much anything he wills into existence, so he sees this and, you know, he laughs at him, and in turn, other people um, accuse Satan of both not throwing a stone and 
saying, why did you laugh and everything like that. And later, <laughs> and later he says, funnily enough, out of that group of 42 people, all but two people were just like you. They, they all revolted and recoiled at the idea of causing any harm to a woman who they didn't believe was a witch, yet they all threw stones just like you. And again... This is a very good point that's criticizing both the human condition and organized religion. And at the end, which I think is the weakest if you take it at face value, but if you put it in this paradigm of first criticizing superstition, then organized religion, and realizing you need kind of... You need to know more about the religion that you're you're getting a part of. He, it basically goes full nihilism that the main character, it turned out this whole time, was the only thing in existence. That how could such a ludicrous thing, such as a god who preaches love, yet yet creates hell, a god who preaches justice, yet creates the most injustice, and all these other different things like that exist, except within a dream. And you don't even exist. You don't have a physical body. All you are is a single... I, as he puts it, a single thought drifting through the endless vacuum of space, and I, your humble servant, have 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 released you from this, and I already feel myself fading away as you realize this. Now, you could just <laughs> look at this at face value and be like, yeah, it's just empty nihilism. It's it's pointless. Good for it's the fictional satire. story. <laughs> yeah, it's good for the fictional story, but the way I see it as kind of a... It's kind of almost a criticism of also direct atheism and nihilism itself, because if you're following along this path, first it criticizes superstition, then it criticizes organized religion, and then it gets into a matter of what you think you know about your religion, even when you make it kind of a personalized thing in the case of Protestantism. If if you don't actually research it and have a philosophical and theological base of what... <laughs> what is actually true about your religion in this case it's christianity obviously and i'm christian and i believe that and everything like that then you're just going to end up with a complete rejection of religion and say organized religion is bad and because of all these things that the organized religion has taught me not being true obviously the whole thing is true and then it gets into the whole nihilism of absolutely nothing exists except you being a solitary thought and this was kind of like the transition for me i at first was very into the organized religion thing i didn't really question everything much but then i kind of got into the rejection of it and i kind of got more into mysticism and everything like that so it's kind of the inverse of how how it's going but then i i realized that looking into it the organized religion wasn't actually what was you know phys philosophically and theology theologically taught within the religion and once I realized that then it's like yes it needs to be kind of not so much personal because you need unity with other members of the faith and everything like that but it's personal in the sense that you understand completely the theology and philosophy and not just dictated by a church authority or even just a an unorganized church authority such as a Protestant church about what it actually says and teaches. And I think it's it's a very it's a very, very, very good fiction book. I recommend all people read it. Just um just look I'm gonna be uploading the audiobook because it's in the public domain to my um 
my YouTube channel, just, you know, Colcol, C-O-L-C-O-A-L, to listen to, and I highly recommend everyone listen to it. it. It won't take much time. Each chapter is like 40 minutes, and there's 12 chapters in total. And if you want a good fiction book of traditional America, Americana, read this book. If you also want a good criticism and analysis of both the human condition and also... Um, and also both um, supernaturalism, organized religion, and um, and at what I put it, this kind of um, absurdness of this nihilistic um, end that you reach with the complete rejection of all religion, then you should definitely, absolutely, both both read it and listen to the audiobook. Book. Even after you read it, it's still a worthwhile thing to listen to this this guy just absolutely get into the story and bring this world to life. So who who wants to go next with this? Who wants I would to go be next happy to go next. Alright, sure, go on ahead. Alright. <clears throat> so Once Upon a White Man by Graham Atkinson. It's a so I'll start with kind of the meta issues of the book. Um it's not the best written book in the world to be honest. It's literally just a self published So it's like Quran? <laughs> yeah, well yeah, somewhat. <laughs> It's a self-published memoir of a guy who's clearly trying to come to terms with his life experience. He grew up in what is now called Zimbabwe, formerly known as Rhodesia. So it I'll go into kind of like the background of what was going on before, you know, the meta issues surrounding the book, which are all really important in the book itself. Um, Rhodesia, as some of you would know, is or was the well, yeah, was a country. It was part of the British Empire. It was a colony of the British Empire that's on the east coast of South Africa. It was formed by white settlers who had left. They were Anglo settlers who had left the South Africa region, moved up north. It turns out that the area that is now Zimbabwe is very fertile. And so it was very well adapted to European agricultural models. So these Europeans move up there. Um, they lived there for several generations. They originally settled the area in the late 19th century. Um, then in the 1960s, the British Empire is hemorrhaging colonies right and left, and it's getting ready to split Zimbabwe off of itself. The Zimbabweans, or Rhodesians, I should say, get my terminology correct here, make it a much better show. The Rhodesians did not want to leave the British Empire under a majority rule scenario where the, the natives, the blacks that lived in the region, would have equal say in the government that the white colonists had. So the British Empire basically said, no, we're not going to let you split off that way. So Rhodesia declared its independence from the British Empire as a republic. So it was not part of the Commonwealth and set up a white minority government This in a similar model to South Africa. So after it's setting itself up, um, very shortly afterwards, groups of Soviet-backed communist rebels moving out of the northern border with Angola start pouring south and start basically just causing a bunch of crap in the country. They, you know, typical communist tactics, they rally up the people that live in the countryside and this what's called the Rhodesian Bush Wars go on from the 60s into the 70s. At the end of the 19th at the end of the Bush Wars in the 1970s, Rhodesia is subjected to a really strong terror campaign right before they have a full franchise election to decide who will be the new president. And that comes after, you know, 
crippling economic sanctions from the Western world and Rhodesia just basically not being able to function as a country anymore with this war going on. No one's helping them except South Africa and South Africa is not helping them very much because it doesn't want to also get sanctioned heavily. So what happens? Robert Mugabe, the general of the communist faction, gets elected president and then obviously the country begins to decay though all of the economic sanctions are lifted off of it though it normalizes its relationships with the western world most importantly with britain it the country just starts to atrophy uh whites are systematically disenfranchised in the country very recently within the last 10 years they were actually all pushed out of the country well the vast majority of them were pushed out of the country and then it went into a crippling famine that it continues to go through today. Zimbabwe is the country that we all know has the trillion dollar banknotes that are still worthless. Um, it has been horribly mismanaged. Robert Mugabe has not given up power. He remains in power to this day, though he's extremely old and he's just as incompetent now as he was then. All right, so instead of going through this man's life story, I'll just kind of give you some vignettes that are quotes that I've highlighted out of the text that I think really speak to not only kind of the situation this guy's going through, but also kind of the trajectory of Western society as we are now experiencing. So while he's in college, he goes to college in South Africa. While he's in college, he's your basic, you know, shit lib. He's just an average leftist. He doesn't really understand the war. He's got these vague ideas about, you know, equality and egalitarianism. And he gets in this really heated fight with a veteran who, from the Bush Wars who's also in South Africa going to college. And in the middle of that fight, or right towards the end of that fight, you know, this, the main character, uh, Graham Atkins, ends up like beating this guy over the head, knocks him out, and dude is barely coherent. But he says one last thing as he's being dropped off at the hospital by our, our anti-hero Graham Atkins. He says, you don't get it, do you? They hate you as much as they hate me. They hate all of us whites, and they want all they want is to get rid of you and your family and destroy everything you own. You can moralize as much as you want about seeing both sides, but at the end of the day, to them, your family is white, and while you sit here in South Africa criticizing back home, it's only our soldiers that are keeping your family safe. So this and very shortly afterwards he gets recalled to Zimbabwe or he gets recalled to Rhodesia because he gets drafted. And so he goes through this period where he's basically an officer because he's got college experience over a group of blacks who don't want Rhodesia to explode because they know that life is better for them as it is now and they fear what will happen when the communist government takes over. Oh boy, were they right. So he, he reaches the point where the election has happened, you know, the war is lost. He's, you know, he's in the war as it's lost, the very last year of the war. Um, and he's thinking as everything is starting to unwind, as the war is starting to unwind now that Mugabe has gotten power. He's thinking about, like, what situation could redeem now what's now known as Zimbabwe, like how Zimbabwe can move forward. He says... Whatever those answers, it was too late to look for alternatives or to lay blame. Life in the unique privileged form that my grandfather, my father, and I had known it was over. Ninety years of white supremacy had finally evaporated. Now the new Zimbabwe, in all its dancing, chanting reality, lay waiting for us outside the door. And that new reality that he immediately is exposed to is the extreme disenfranchisement of the white population from the government 
they're almost completely kicked out of the government. He works for the government very briefly and has numerous run-ins that are explained in the book where you know the black officers that he's dealing with or the you know black company men he's dealing with won't cooperate with him because he's white. He has one situation where he almost gets killed simply because he's a white man and this guy has been fighting white men in the jungle for the last 10 years, really not happy to see him even though he's a government minister. And then he's dealing, um, then they start to kill the whites, right? We all know that this happened there, though they don't teach us this in history. The whites start getting killed off by the guerrillas, kind of ad hoc. The government turns a blind eye to it. They just kind of accept that it's happening. Um, and so he's wondering, and this is his quote about this, he's wondering why the Western world isn't doing anything about this when, you know, when it was Rhodesia, they had a lot of things to say. They were sanctioning the country. And at that time, the white Rhodesians were not slaughtering the blacks of the country. So he says, surely they asked of Western governments, you're quick enough to denounce the apartheid regime in South Africa. So can't you let these worst abuses in Zimbabwe pass without protest? Can you? Well, yes, they did. Big surprise. The Western world had nothing to say about it. And he's talking to a British person later. And he said, um, the British person says to him, or, no, 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 I'm sorry. I'm mistaking my vignettes here. So he applies for a job. This is a little bit later in the book. He applies for a job. And he goes into the job interview. It's at a college. It says a lecturer. He gives the interview. Everyone seems very impressed with what he does. And then afterwards, he doesn't get the job. He asks the guy who tells him he's not getting the job. And he asks him why. And the dude said, you never stood a chance. We were given a clear brief to find a black person for the job. Sound familiar, anyone? <laughs> All right, moving on. Um, so shortly thereafter, you know, he's married. He's got kids. Things are starting to heat up in Zimbabwe. And he's trying to feed his family and having increasing difficulty finding any kind of job in order to do that. So he he's pontificates a lot in this book about kind of the situation. That's where I'm pulling most of these from. And he says in this vignette, as he's still not able to find a job, and young whites like me with energy and talent to offer were vilified as racist and were deliberately sidelined from any meaningful role in the country's future. I'm sure that this is striking <coughs> chords with the audience. You guys have have to have felt this way before. All right, and then let me move on to, I think this is my last one coming up here. Yes. So he's realizing that he's got to leave. He's actually just applied at the Australian embassy for asylum in Australia, which Australia is the only country that's willing to give it to the white Zimbabweans. Um, and he's reflecting on like how he's going to leave or like the the feeling of having to leave behind a homeland and you know flee somewhere else because it's no longer safe for you you're kind of no longer welcome there which speaks a lot to me as a californian just saying so this is his his last pontification that i will give i realized that here was the core of my problem i had a huge emotional ownership in this country zimbabwe was the land of my birth my children were fourth generation. We, my family and my tribe, had painstakingly built this nation and its infrastructure over generations. Like middle-class missionaries, most of us had also tried to spread a gospel of honesty, fairness, and integrity. 
Now, emasculated by Mugabe's new elite, we were being forced to watch as the entire fabric of our country, roads and railways, hospitals and schools, sports clubs and libraries, forests and game reserves, freedom of the press, the rule of law, professionalism, respect for the judicial system, were systematically and deliberately trashed. The potholes in the ro road were not just potholes to me. The eyes of a beggar, not just another hungry face. Instead, these things spoke of a deliberate, orchestrated destruction of my country, its future, and its people. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> this all, it's just striking familiarity. It's kind of home. Mm. I know, seriously. Especially for me in my particular situation where it's like, oh my God. It's like prophecy. Yeah, no kidding. And that's why I chose this book this week is because... This is the trajectory we're headed down. Maybe not, you know, the minor, what was like 5% of the population was ever white in Rhodesia. We're going to be a larger chunk, but this is exactly what we're going to end up facing if we keep letting it going. There won't be any Australia for us to run to, though. Right, exactly, because mm. Australia will that be that, too. That will be muzzies. Um, I could read one more. So this is towards the end of the book. He just had to put his dogs down so he could flee australia which also hit home to me because it's like man i don't know if i could do that actually i think i would stay and get killed by the blacks as opposed to kill my dog just try to take as many of them out as you could before you died pretty much well also my dog is like a german shepherd type dog so blacks kind of afraid of me anyway when i have him around so it's kind of perfect so he's him and his wife are reflecting on the fact that they've gotten their visas they're leaving to Australia with their kids. They're leaving everything they've ever known behind, their entire world behind. And they're looking at each other grimly and, quote, These were the thoughts that we had preferred to keep buried over the last few years, rather than having to face up to a growing realization that Zimbabwe was finally going the same way as the rest of black Africa. The worst racists had always predicted this, and we had always hoped they would be wrong. Take fucking that, left. So that is Once Upon a White Man. Uber, let's wow. hear from you. All right. Well, <laughs> let's see. Uh, I don't know if I can do it justice. The Bhagavad Gita. It is essentially, so it's like the second oldest piece of um, Hindu Vedic literature, or prose, rather, because it's almost kind of poetry. Um Let's see if I can find a date here. Uh, 500 BC, so it's rather old. Um, so the kind of crux of the plot, I suppose, just kind of some background information more than any less important than the uh, um, religious or philosophical context, but uh, it it centers mostly around uh, a character named Arjuna who is uh, depicted on a chariot with Krishna. And um, for those of our listeners not familiar with uh, Hindu mythology or religious practice, Krishna is considered to be a um, <clears throat> almost kind of a Hindu analog to Christ. He is a, um, I guess the word would be, incarnation of... Um, one of their deities, a, a fleshly man, sort of incarnation of a Hindu deity. And <coughs> so basically what's going on is, for some additional historical context, I guess, is these two 
like confederations of kingdoms or kingdoms in India, ancient India are preparing to go to war. Um, some like pretender king is trying to, like one of the younger brothers is trying to usurp his rightful older brother from the throne and so all the armies have gotten up and they're marching and they're getting ready to go to war and um so Arjuna in his uh chariot goes to sort of survey the the armies he can like ride ahead and take a look at them and see what's about to happen pretty much and you know he sees all of his sides forces moving out and then he goes ahead and he sees the enemy um, coming forward to meet them and <coughs> the length of the book it's like impossibly long for them to not have gone to battle yet but it's a, like basically a um, a long uh, religious and philosophical exchange between Arjuna and Krishna about a lot of themes like duty and um, enlightenment and how to achieve that and uh, like the basic Hindu religious beliefs. So what sort of starts is when Arjuna sees the enemy marching forward, he despairs and he becomes disheartened and he says uh, something uh, basically along the context of, well, these are my brothers, they're my teachers, they're my countrymen, they're my my masters and my, um, my father-in-laws. Basically that, like, we're the same people. So how can I how can I ride forth and slay these men? He bi he pretty much says something to the effect of like, um, even a even a kingdom in heaven would not be a great enough reward for riding against my own brethren. So how can I do it for a kingdom on earth, a kingdom of dust? And <clears throat> it starts with Krishna sort of exhorting him to his duty, and then leads into this long uh, sort of religious and philosophical exchange but basically it starts with Krishna telling him pretty much like you don't need to worry about killing these dudes because they're just going to be reincarnated <laughs> that's <laughs> pretty much what he literally says like don't worry about it man they'll just be born again you're not actually killing anyone you don't need to be sad <laughs> and then you know Arjuna is like well you know tell me more about these these things that you're you're revealing to me I hadn't been aware of anything like this and then he goes on to tell him like a lot of I'll I'll touch on the vague vague Hindu mysticism first I guess where he pr pretty much is like everything is one like Brahman is all so every individual is not actually an individual they're just a part of a greater whole so like when you when you kill that man on the battlefield it's no more unnatural than like a lion eating its prey in the wild or like water eroding a rock. It's not some kind of like perversion of nature. It's just what's destined. It's what's going to happen. Like you can't avoid it. If you try to avoid it, you'll just be killed in turn. It's just what has to happen. And then he kind of talks about like, so he tells him a bit about duty, like that if you sort of try to stray from what ultimately is your duty as the side of good to defeat these evil men then you're going to be remembered as a spineless coward because what what was basically he tells him what his thoughts on not wanting to uh to fight against these pretenders is basically false virtue that it sounds like uh 
virtue in his head because he's saying he doesn't want to kill his brethren. But it's actually just an excuse to not do his duty. That his duty comes before all, essentially. That if he doesn't fight for his nation to be ruled by just men, then he's dooming like generations of people to be ruled over by fools and tyrants, basically. So a couple of lives for that is ultimately not a great price to pay. But then he asks him after that, he says, like, you know, what's the path of enlightenment and how does one reach it? And um, pretty much he tells him, and it, <laughs> it's a very kind of like different perspective from our uh, Western philosophical tradition. It almost kind of sounds like reminiscent of um, like what they say the Jedi stuff is in Star Wars. You know, he says basically like if you there's two paths you can take to enlightenment. The first is of renunciation and the second is of action. And that renunciation is easier, but action is more genuine. That renunciation is basically um, surrendering all passions and desires and sort of um, momentary fleeting uh, reactions to things that are based in delusion. That the wise man recognizes that like momentary elements of circumstance don't really affect anything and that there's nothing that can be done to prevent them or change their ultimate outcome or uh, basis, I guess. So that the wise man pretty much is a stoic that he has sort of joy that transcends any individual circumstance. And um, that's the path of renunciation, basically. The idea of like a, a Buddhist monk almost. Although I guess this is, you know, Hindu and the ideas are very similar. And But then he goes on to say that like renunciation is, um, is not easy, but it's almost easier than action. Because all renunciation requires is for a man to sort of be austere, to just say, well, I, I give up on this whole life thing. And that that's not true enlightenment. That true enlightenment is actually like recognizing the fundamental truth behind renunciation, but then proceeding to action while not actually ex expecting or doing it because of any expectation of personal selfish gain because of those actions that um, <coughs> he refers to it as yoga uh, is the concept of, like holy duty basically that the act of um, doing everything you do as a sort of um, hmm, offering or, or prayer almost like everything is in fact um, spiritual that there is no, there's no specific place that spiritual activity is relegated to, that everything is in fact that. And that if you do, if you live in that mindset, that that is um, true enlightenment, and that's how you reach, um, you know, unification with the One, or Brahma, or enlightenment, or uh, avoiding the cycle of reincarnation, or whatever, you know, you want to call it, I guess. So, um, yeah, that's basically it. If uh, you guys wanted to talk about any of the specific books now, ask any questions about each other's, you know. Yeah. I could answer more questions than, like, just rambling about it, I guess. <laughs>
it's kind of heady, so it's hard to just like talk about it with a consistent train of thought. Yeah. Well, it also was written, you know, 2,500 years ago. Yeah, this is a p- really good translation, apparently, from what I read in the um, introduction, and it seems very clear to read. I do come from a background of having studied uh, Buddhist texts, so I'm familiar with some of the religious ideas to a degree, but it seemed digestible to me. All right, well, I mean, who wants to ask questions first? Go for it. Not really questions, but um, it's bring up this topic. I don't think that, like, um, at least for American whites, that kind of looking for this original ancient Aryan in the northern of <laughs> northern part of India or Iran or that in other general place. I don't think that's like a worthwhile endeavor. What What do you all think? I am actually very much into not necessarily looking for the original Aryan, but just like the incorporation of kind of the pre-Christian kind of Indo-European generalized like <laughs> Tommy's a pagan worldview. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a Christian, full disclosure here. Uh, like whereas I would say that I think worshiping the, you know, no offense to any Christians out there, but worshiping the Jew who was crucified is not very helpful either. Maybe from a more Nietzschean criticism that comes from, but I mean, personally, six to one, half dozen to the other, whatever you find is more useful for you personally. I'm yes, totally whatever fine with. Whatever helps your struggle is useful, right? Ultimately, I don't know about um, like I. It's a meme to me, Cole. Like sometimes I joke about uh, uh, Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever being the proto Aryan religion. I don't. <laughs> I don't think that's literally true. Right, um, obviously not. I do not. think that there are there are things we can learn uh, from other cultures, <laughs> religious ideals. <laughs> like, we can not necessarily, like, embrace them or adapt them because they're not ours. Right. But we can either find valid criticisms of them, reasons why they won't work for our culture or our people, or we can even take certain elements of them that we think are are helpful or complementary to our particular culture's ethics and values. And uh, I would avoid the word like syncretism or something to that effect, but just sort of like, oh, that's that's neat. I'll use that. Well, I mean, look at look at the way that the Kali Yuga is used within this movement, specifically tying back to whose name now I cannot think of because I'm trying to make a point about him, uh, Evola. <laughs> Like, you know, there are elements within the Eastern thought that are useful to us, but it is important Mm -hmm. to notice, if you are going to delve down into that, that there was what the Aryans brought, the Vedic religion, and then there was 3,000 years of that mixing in with the local kind of belief systems and the experience Mm -hmm. of those peoples in the Indian subcontinent that definitely uh, muddy the waters, as well as, like, these books are 3,000 years old. Right, because one reason I chose the Gita specifically is because I read somewhere that uh, Heinrich Himmler always carried a copy with him and would read it and had his SS officers read it as well. So I was curious if you guys wanted to talk about, like, what what did he mean by that, pretty much? Well, you do your duty, (laughs) even though you're not going to like it. I mean, do my duty. Oh well. With that, yeah. I I think he, I think it's kind of reading into it and bringing out of this because we, we do have to 
have to note that this is a particular. It is a religious text. It's not. It's. Mm. It's kind of getting. It's not secular. Well, no, right. no, no, not that. You can have philosophy that's religious and everything like that. Like read Thomas Aquinas and everything like that. But I'm. I'm. I think the point I'm. I'm trying to get at is. You can read like almost any religious book and get something out of it, as you said, but. I think, like, the big issue, and I think one of the big failings of the German National Socialist Party was kind of a... It's not even, like, purity spiraling. It's just kind of, like, in endless, like, navel-gazing and kind of... Yes, you're supposed to honor your ancestors. You can learn from your ancestors. And I definitely think us American white nationalists can learn even from the pre-Christian European period of, of duty and honor and dying a heroic death as Evola puts in everything like that. But if you just kind of endlessly go back and think that the further you go back, the more kind of like the more <clears throat> wisdom and the more endless right. knowledge that you go back and discover. No, yeah, I, I don't I don't think that's true and that's why that's actually a really good point and that's something I brought up the other day on uh, the woke folk when we were talking about Spencer I said he uh, has been known to occasionally defend homosexuality by suggesting that it was part of Greek and Roman culture therefore it's part of European culture therefore it's automatically good and I kind of made the counterpoint like, yes, and people shit into pots and poured them out their windows in that period of time. And that doesn't mean that we should just, d we, I disavow toilets. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's fucking retarded. Just because white people did that 3,000 years ago doesn't mean we should. Right. So I, I completely see what you're saying. That like, just because our ancestors or um, traditions that we come from did a certain thing doesn't mean that we should automatically do that. Right. Exactly. And and, a, and something that I never published but that <coughs> I put it before is traditionalism is not is not is not blindly following the following the tra not traditions but the dogmas of your ancestors in order to honor our ancestors who lived and built in log cabins we in se ourselves don't live and build log cabins instead we honor them by improving the log cabin well, and right. and understanding it's, where it comes from but at the same time making improvements to honor it right i would also say that another failing that often happens when westerners start to explore hinduism buddhism the, the indian subcontinent dharmic religions is they're using it as a replacement for a sense of identity that they won't take within their own people oh right absolutely because the only kind of identity for westerners that isn't acceptable is basically a white racialist identity right I mean, much less a Christian one. I mean, I'm not even a Christian, but I, I, uh, I must recognize that there's a concerted cultural attack upon the, the Christian identity in many parts of the West. Right, exactly. So. Which is why I'm very, very tolerant of Christianity, traditional Christianity, right. because yes, it, there a there's something there that it's two thousand years worth of our people interacting with this religion, so there is absolutely something there. But also that it's clear that the part of the deconstruction of Western civilization is taking out Christianity. Right. Maybe I I've, mean, you know, I'm susceptible so to that myself, <laughs> and that's why I'm where I am. Yeah, so we, w what you brought up, and I think that's, yeah, a very good point, that 
I think Eastern religion and mysticism is extremely valuable to study, like I said, at the very least, to, at the very least, think of it as a know-your-enemy sort of idea. If not that, then yeah, you can think of it as, like, there is something useful to learn in every sort of philosophy or religion. But I do agree with the point that a lot of times what wisdom there is in sort of Eastern religious and philosophical traditions has been very much co-opted or sort of diluted when it's imported to the West. Right. Like, 90% of the people who practice Buddhism or Hinduism in the West who are white are fucking shit-lib pieces of trash. Mm-hmm. 90%? Like no one, no one, 99. Yeah, I'm, being, I'm being generous. Like, no one who practices Hinduism in the West who's white, like advertises the parts of it that are like duty and like yeah you have to go kill those people because they're evil like <laughs> mm-hmm. no one practices like lay-based hinduism basically it's all like oh you know like buddha said that we're all the same and shit so that means refugees welcome mm-hmm. like it's people who can't they have a fucking barely a brain stem and that's it so they were taught that Christianity bad, and they desperately need some sort of identity in their life because all human beings require some sense of identity. So they just seek some form of identity that's not problematic, and they just adopt it. Mm, and that's true, too. Which is kind of ironic, because that's almost a form of colonialism, like just adopting some other culture appropriation. you can't have your own. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I know. I don't. I don't believe in that shit or preach it. Like, oh, you shouldn't culturally appropriate. But it is sort of ironic in a mm. way. Right. But I also kind of extend this to the the like. I believe like the original pagans. They genuinely believed all this, all their you know p- specific brands of paganism and things like that. However, I think modern pagans. I think a problem that they face is they kind of approach it from they reject the organized religion and they define the organized religion being usually Christianity and usually not even Catholicism just that a general idea of the Bible Christianity so instead when they Mm. kind of look for traditionalist roots they instead convert in quotes to paganism they and they kind of have this mindset of this is the ancient wisdom of the ancestors and none of this stuff is really real but everything is just a parable and everything like that but I'm of the opinion that no, the ancient pagans they genuinely did have they genuinely did have superstitions and they genuinely did for the most part believe this stuff they believe that if you were chast for Apollo then Apollo would honor you with his favor, if you gave a gift to Poseidon before you went on a sea voyage that he would he would be more likely to honor you with his favor. If you raped a virgin, then um, mm. it wasn't Dionysus. Um, it wasn't Aphrodite. Zeus, practically. No, no, no. I'm, I'm talking about the the go- like the goddess of um, fertility or whatever would curse you if you raped a oh, virgin. Oh, Aphrodite. Was that was it Ishtar? Or some was it shit Aphrodite? Like no. Aphrodite was the Grecian goddess of. Uh, of love, fertility, beauty. Yeah, then it might be that. Then I, Aphrodite would would curse you. They genuinely believe this. It wasn't so much of a a general a general principle of you shouldn't rape a woman because it's inherently bad to do so. Here's a fable illustrating that idea. But right, 
It wasn't like Jesus' parables. It was It like, was genuine like genuine things. Like they existed. they generally had explanations like Hercules threw a bear into the sky and created the Ursa Major, the Ursa Major constellation. <laughs> so, but when atheists adopt these things, they—that's why people call them LARPers because they genuinely don't believe all these different things. They don't read like the, the um, what what's the, what's the fucking um Nordic um holy book? The Prose and Poetic Eddas. Ed- is, is, is the, the name of the book. Right. That's Snorri Snorson's, like, saga compilation. Yeah, yeah, like, so, like, I was saying, they don't genuinely believe in all these things that Wotan did and, and said and everything like that. They don't genuinely believe Wotan actually exists, but that he's just a representative concept. And I think that's also a kind of... It's, it's inspired from Nietzsche, his general criticism and rejection of religion as a whole... But I think that's also a bad road to go down, and I also kind of saw that developing within the Nazi party, and I, I honestly just really don't like the, the, the people who cite table talks and say Islam is a much better religion for the European people because Hitler wanted, um, wanted a more warrior, more warrior-like thing. No, Islam lies to everybody about what, what it says, uh, yeah, so. but, and it's also kind of just picking and choosing. It's <laughs> saying, you don't actually believe in Allah or that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, inshallah, and all that stuff. You're just kind of picking it up as like a new set of a new set of clothes, and, but that's not what it's It's almost it's like, yeah, new aesthetics, really. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if I may, Cole. Mm. Because I think you bring up good points, but I'd like to somewhat Absolutely. Reply. You can counter um, all my points. That's the point <clears> of the podcast. No, I'm not going to... No, I don't I don't have, like, oh, I, w- I will systematically reject you. <laughs> I think you make good points. I couldn't I, I couldn't be bothered to do that, honestly. <laughs> you bring more autism to the table than I can handle. <laughs> but um, I will say that, like, what I think... I think you're absolutely right that... Um, Within our community, there is a propensity for people who would probably otherwise be atheists to adopt paganism as this, some sort of um, like volkish identity, m- metaphorical religion, if you could even mm-hmm. call it An that. An atheistic religion. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Almost like Pastafarian, but slightly less uh, ironic, mm-hmm. I guess. More like Satanism. Uh, so they, they kind of are LARPers to a certain degree. And... <clears throat> I've I've been listening to your your criticisms quite keenly because I I kind of feel myself being pulled in that direction more and more recently. So maybe you and me can discuss it more in depth after the podcast. Mm-hmm. But I guess what I would say is my thoughts are that like that is true that Christianity at least has the benefit of like people actually practice it sincerely to this mm-hmm. day. Um but on the other hand, I feel like there is a unique and different set of criticisms that could be leveled at Christianity in particular when discussing like the the things that led to sort of the downfall or downward slope of Western civilization. Like, I would suggest that the fact that Christianity is in fact so universal, yes, that it preaches like everyone can become a Christian and and salvation is available mm-hmm. to everyone like is almost kind of like antithetical to the the notion of being an ethno-nationalist and like believing that your people are uniquely valuable in and of themselves 
Whereas a more Volkish religion, like, I, you couldn't convert to, like, Chinese ancestor worship any more than a Chinese person could convert to Nordic paganism, because you don't have any Chinese ancestors to worship. So, like, I, I hear what you're saying, and I think it's a legitimate problem, but I think, like, maybe the Christianity has contributed to like the refugees oh and mindset i i absolutely agree with that and i've come to a kind of conclusion about this and this is a, a very long topic but we're on a nationalist podcast so we can get into this so <laughs> there you go so it's kind of a a form of compartmentalization and it's not it has some supporting doctrine within christianity but this is the way that i kind of put it you need to separate religion from the state. That's why I always on test, even though I'm very fundamentalist, I I absolutely preach a a secular state. In in an ide- in my ideal state of white nationalism, the state is in fact very very secular. It could be informed by the values of Christianity, such obvious things such as don't murder, no no usury and everything like that. But <laughs> at the same time, you the way I view it as Christianity is meant to be a it's meant to be a personal religion. The very defining thing is well, first off, you ask the question, do you believe God exists? Alright, cool. Do you believe Jesus Christ was the Son of God, he died on the cross and was resurrected for your sins, etc. But then the third the third question that, you know, defines Christianity that I believe and I think is supported by a majority of the Gospels and the doctrines is are you in a personal relationship with Jesus? And that's kind of like the defining thing. It's not so much have you enforced a a society that is defined as Christian while you yourself are just kind of abstractly tied where you... <laughs> the well, liberal Christian. It, it's not so much <laughs> that. It's more like if you... If you were a rich person and you set up a charity organization that, you know, did charitable things, it fed the homeless or something like that, it's asking, are you really personally feeding the homeless or are you just sending a check off every month to fund this organization? Right. And it's because... like that. If you set up a Christian organization, yeah, that's that's a good thing. But what's the most important and what really defines you being a Christian is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Right. And I can and see so that, that's where I kind of think. So those... when I look at politics and say, all right, how can a functional government run? How can it maximize things such as the well-being of the people and things like that? I come to ethno-nationalist conclusions. But then I look at myself and I say, how can I personally be, in, in just the loosest terms, saved or, you know, religiously woke as it is to maximize that? <laughs> and that would be... Christianity it it's kind of it's kind of yeah. just kind of stupid to think okay I am alone can I be an ethno-nationalist just by myself no you you need a group to do it and likewise you don't yeah, you need, need a group to be Christian <laughs> so it's kind of separating the individual right. from the society at large and another kind of yeah. um, I'll just add one more point to this the the particular text mm. and doctrine that's used to preach um, universalism and multiculturalism and everything like that is 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 through Christ there there is neither Jew no nor Greek and and everything like that yeah that's very universalist but if you look at the actual context of it and how it was done the the same pattern constantly appears in acts what would happen would be the disciples, in particular, um, 
in particular, Paul would go and he would preach to the Jews first in that local village. And he would say, you are saved through Jesus Christ. And usually they'd be, you know, moderately, they'd be moderately happy about that. Not really too pleased either way. And then what would happen is they would go and preach to the Gentiles, the non-Jews in the area. But then after that, the Pharisees and the Jews in that area would get absolutely pissed and livid. They would absolutely reject Christ. Not only that, but they would go... Just literally reing. Not, yeah, but being doing it in a very subversive <laughs> Jewy way. They would actually go among the Gentiles, tell mm. lies about the people preaching, and get the Gentiles to also be I'm angry and cast out the disciples and everything like that. And the way mm. that Paul talks about this is that... God chose to first introduce himself, basically reintroduce himself after the long time from, you know, um, from Moses and everything like that to, His yeah, <laughs> to the Jews first. But as he puts it and is also talked about at length and in my favorite book of the Old Testament, Hosea, which basically it's it's like 65 percent ragging on jews and saying how jews are the worst people on the planet and how god doesn't love you because you're a jew and everything like that seriously read hosea if you want to read as as people would put the most anti-semitic book in the in the world go read the jew own the jews own book hosea more than yes it, it basically says like you you're nothing but like dirty rats and you are yeah, and it basically <laughs> calls them prostitutions and prostitute, uh, prostitutive whores oh and everything God. like that. Jose is great. It's not shit. even that long, but it, but it, and at the very end, it preaches that they can be saved. They won't be saved because they're Jews, because Jews are abominable. They're but but hard. if you you know become you know saved through the the Messiah and everything like that. But going back to the other point, the point like Paul says. God came to the Jews first, but when Jews reject reject God, then the gift is shared to many other people. And Jesus says this, that at the kingdom there are many of, and, you know, kind of paradoxically, he also says the word the kingdom. However, in the original translation, this the, the first use of the word kingdom refers to the actual kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and the second kingdom refers to Specifically, Jews will be cast from the table, and there will be much gnashing and and weeping and everything like that. <laughs> so the basic formula wow. is, God will, God gave gave this kind of gift to the Jews, and when the Jews were absolutely terrible and rejected the gift, He spreads it to all other people. He said, "Fine, it's no longer no longer hmm. yours anymore." And that's where this idea comes from. That yes. The Jews were the first people, but I, it's not, this, this next personal thing isn't based on any doctrine, but I kind of like to think that, that God, um, that God wanted to try to save the worst people, uh, the most deprived people on the planet first, because as Christ said, a doctor is need oh amongst God. the sick, not the healthy. So he, so yeah. it's kind of, that's how that's kind of put forward to me. That's kind Holy of a meritocratic shit. thing that. That yes, everyone can be saved through Christ, but first you have to have the ability, you know, to have this personal relationship with so Christ. You would suggest, and some Jews don't like have that. People are saved on an individual basis, not a uh, not a exactly. Basis. Hmm. But some background for like uh, like things you said, which I I noticed and I kind of agree with from my own knowledge of at least interpretation of Christian theology, is. Um, 
you know, Jesus spent the majority of his ministry preaching against the prophets, uh, Pharisees, mm-hmm. excuse me. When I said prophecies, whatever the fuck that is. The Pharisees organized um, religious types who were extremely, like, hoity-toity. And you you were talking about, um, like, if a rich person were to... Set up uh, their own charity. Yep. Have a charity or whatever. There's one particular passage I couldn't tell you. You might be able Oh, to yes. I know the exact passage uh, you're referring to, and there's actually two passages. Are you going to talk about the one where... Well, there's one where he says... He compares and contrasts the sheep and the goats where it says, um, you know, there's there's the goats or whatever, the bad group. He says, like, but Lord, didn't I preach in your name and spread the good word? And you never knew me. And and he's like, and yet you never knew me. Be gone from my sight. And then there's, you know, the humble sheep or whatever. And they never really did anything great or whatever by man's eyes but he says you know every time you homed the homeless and fed the hungry and yep. it was really me that you were and doing I that know for. I know the two um, passages I know the two passages and there's also two other related passages that have to do with this the first one is Jesus and the disciples were sitting in front of the temple watching people give gifts and everything and this one old um old woman just gave like a single right. She gave yeah, a, single a single copper, copper coin, and she and he said that woman gave the greatest like of all the people, for she gave all she had. And the second similar related passage is, don't be is don't, and this has to do with fasting. Don't be like the Pharisees who go about looking looking haggard and and um and starving when you right. fast. For they receive their rewards for men, and they've received their rewards in full when. When you fast, and this is being analogous to all other kinds of things, such mm-hmm. as charity and everything like that, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. For if you do good in secret, right. then you shall be rewarded in heaven. And I, I want to also yeah. just read this little um, passage that that I absolutely love from St. John Christendom about the Jews. And it's, it's absolutely great, because it's completely applicable today, the people in the evangelical church who absolutely, like, worship Israel and everything like that. Now, I'm going to read yeah. I'm gonna read this. Many I know respect the Jews and think that their present way of life is a venerable one. This is why I hasten to uproot and tear out this deadly opinion. I said that the synagogue is no better than a theater, and I bring forward a prophet as my witness. Surely the Jews are no more deserving of belief than their prophets. You had a harlot's brow, you became shameless before all. Where a harlot has set herself up, that place is a brothel. But a synagogue is not only a brothel and a theater, it is also a den of robbers and a lodging for wild beasts. Jeremiah said, <laughs> Jeremiah said your house has become for me a den of a hyena. He does not simply say of a wild beast, but of a filthy wild beast. And again, I have abandoned my house and cast off my inheritance. But when God forsakes a people, what hope of salvation is left? When God forsakes a place, that place becomes the dwelling of demons. But but at any rate, Jews say that they too adore God. God forbid I say that. No Jew adores God. Who say so? The Son of God say so. For he said, If you were to know my Father, you would also know me. But you neither know me, nor do you know my Father. Could I produce a witness more trustworthy than that of the Son of God? If then the Jews failed to know the Father, if they crucified the Son, if they thrust off the help of the Holy Spirit, who should not make bold to declare plainly that the synagogue is a dwelling place of demons? God is not worshipped there, heaven forbid. 
from now from now on it remains a place of idolatry but still some people pay it honor as a holy place in our churches we hear court courtless homilies on external on eternal punishments of rivers of fire on the venomous worm on bonds that cannot be burst or exterior darkness but the jews neither know nor dream of these things for they live for their bellies they gape for the things of this world their condition is not better than that of pigs or goats because their wanton ways and excessive gluttony they know but one thing to fill their bellies and be drunk to get all cut and bruised to be hurt and wounded while fighting for their favorite charioters here the slayers of Christ gather together, here the cross is driven out, here God is blasphemed, here the Father is ignored, here the Son is outraged, here the grace of the Spirit is rejected. Does not greater harm come from this place, since Jews themselves are demons? Since the godlessness of the Jews and pagans, er, sorry, so the godlessness and of the Jews and pagans is on par, but the Jews practice a deceit which is more dangerous. In their synagogue stands an invisible altar of deceit, which on they sacrifice not sheep and calves, but the souls of men. What else do you wish for me to tell you? Shall I tell you of their plundering, their covetousness, their abandonment of the poor, their thefts, their cheating and trade? The whole day long will not be enough to give you account of these things. And, and I absolutely love this position because it illustrates the exact point that the Jews, they can't worship God the Father, because the only way to come to God the Father is through Christ the Son. And if they reject all parts of the trilogy, then obviously they're not honorable and venerable. They're not they're not our brothers, and as he put them, puts them, he describes them as demons. Only through Christ can they be saved. <laughs> oh ye generation of vipers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, my favorite. It's my favorite passage from the mm, entire Me too. And, <laughs> I second that motion. And a, similar, and a similar thing, do you think that if God wished he could raise up sons of Abraham from these rocks? Nay, I say unto you... Um, Crap, what was... I'm trying... The beginning I quoted perfectly, but... Yeah, yeah, I say to you that... And this is from John the Baptist. That one shall come after me, and he shall not baptize with water, but with fire. But with fire and the but Holy Spirit. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or the Holy Ghost in the King James. And, oh. and you always see that with the, with the fucking Pharisees, man. Like, they always do things, and Jesus asks them, Did John baptize just... with, with... From... Wait, he said, "Do you baptize from earth or from heaven?" No, he. The river Jordan. They, he asked, "Did did John's baptism come from heaven or with earth?" And all the priests, you know, you can imagine them all huddling around. If we say it was from earth, the people really like him, so he'll they'll not like us. We can't say that. But if we say from heaven, then he'll say, "Then why did you not believe him?" And so they just reply, "We don't know." <laughs> <laughs> Just they try to Jew their way out of replying uh -huh. to Jesus. Actually, of course. <laughs> as funny as it is, like Jesus, I'm gonna talk myself into liking Christianity again. Jesus actually outjewed <laughs> the Jew when he would talk to the Pharisees. He would continually trick them into some position where they didn't know how to respond to him. When that's kind of what they did best, mm -hmm. generally. <laughs> or rather, they used um deliberately like flowery language to try to conceal the truth they weren't actually good at talking right. about mm -hmm. it hmm. <laughs> it's almost mm. like god's better at jewing the jew than the jews are at jewing him <laughs> weird 
I wonder how that's gonna work yeah. out when they have to explain all the Talmudic shit they've been doing. Uh huh. Like uh, the one of the one of the greatest you... Talmud quotes that absolutely refutes their. It, it just completely solidifies solidifies John and Jesus's criticism of them that the traditions of the rabbi are greater than the traditions of God. It just. Ugh. How much? Oof. How much do you know about the Talmud, Cole? Because I haven't done extensive. I haven't done extensive I e to, either. I just but... know the 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 very basics. Cause... Um, I I recommend highly the um the documentary done by um um based in quotes Pastor Steve Anderson on the Talmud. Um, it's mm. marching to Zion, and he I I love that documentary because it absolutely crushes the the notion that the Jews are are good and Christians have to support the kingdom of Israel. This is a, a small minor point I'll bring up. I'll do it less than like four sentences. But no, Israel doesn't, you don't have to support Israel as a Christian because the kingdom of God, the Israel, as it's said in the New Testament and spoken by the things, as Jesus puts it, my kingdom is not of this earth. The kingdom of Israel is the, the it's not the, um, it's not a physical kingdom, it's this kind of, it's this religious kingdom, the people who are Jesus's people, like the kingdom of heaven. It's not a physical place, just because it's called Israel, even if it's inhabited by Jews, you, you don't have to like it, and indeed you shouldn't, because synagogue of Satan and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I don't know. I was just I was asking um mostly because I've seen some people kind of uh, it's sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between when somebody is memeing versus suggesting an actual like ideological or philosophical point, which is one of the weaknesses of our overall movement, I guess, but I've seen people memeing about um a particular passage in the Talmud where they supposedly they say uh, the Virgin Mary is a whore, and and Jesus is boiling in semen forever in oh, hell. Yeah, the Talmud absolutely other hates people, Christianity and everything about it. Other people talking about how the Star of David was never a symbol originally of um of the old ancient Hebrew religion, and that uh, like <clears throat> I guess when they called it the Star of Solomon, I think in this particular thing I saw. And they suggested that when the Israelites were taken into captivity in Babylon, that they adopted a lot of their horrible gods in addition to the ones they had adopted before, before their fall. And that that and the Talmud basically suggests that modern Judaism is actually more like demon worship than actually the worship of of Yahweh or of uh well yeah that that, that, that is God, true I like guess, the the wanna... kind of um the the general <laughs> sense of um what is God in the Talmud is it believes that the Jews in are literally God they believe that each single Jew has kind of like a a piece of God in them it's not in the um Indian <laughs> it's not in the Hindu sense that every single sure. every single person is yeah thing yeah, everything, everything is God is as a whole. They believe that for the Jews, every single one of them has has a piece. This little piece of Yahweh. Yeah, a piece of God of them. themselves, and, <laughs> and yeah, nobody, nobody else, else except for except for <laughs> Jews. And it's the Talmud is just one of like Jesus the most you know Christ. terrible books. We should purge them just for that reason. Yeah, <laughs> a little piece of God, huh? Mm -hmm. 
little piece of Yahweh. Because even the fucking... Because that was in what I read, right? The Gita. It suggested, like, every fucking person, every human being has... I'm sure you're mm. both familiar with this to some degree or another. The idea is typically referred to as the divine spark. That uh, some some little tiny piece of Brahman or the universe or whatever the fuck you want to call it is inside of all right. of us. It's and you know, we've returned to him when we've done enough reincarnations or whatever the fuck. It's kind of like classical Vedic uh, mm-hmm. mythology. Pantheism. It's classical so Vedic pantheism. Y- yeah, pretty. Yeah, pretty much. But it's uh, sort of similar to that, but not exactly the same. <laughs> More egotistical on an ethnic basis, mm-hmm. I guess. But I don't know. Jews have a long history of thinking they're special. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, they, they are special. The original racial. They get kicked out of almost every country they go to. <laughs> yeah, but here's right. the thing: with the that, that's actually people. a good, you know, a, a, that's actually a good thing from an ethnocentric point of view. If you want to have, it, and this is where it kind of separates, you know, into the secular secular thing. If you want to have your own mythos about the uniqueness of your race and such like that, that's a completely fine thing. If Israel literally stayed to themselves and wasn't involved in all this international bullshit, if they literally say to themselves and practice, like, Talmudic oh, Judaism and believe they had a piece of God inside them, I I would be... Fine is not the right word, but I would be indifferent to that. Yeah, and here's one of the it. least popular <laughs> opinions that I have. I, always, I, I, I put it like this. In anarchistic collective politics, might makes right is the is the only moral. The So, basically... I'm say I say we just cut off right now. This is part one, everyone. Okay. Thank you for listening. We're gonna continue on with the philosophical discussion. Um, book reviews are done, and if you want to, um, if you want to listen to particularly the audiobook I mentioned, I'm going to be uploading it to my channel, Cole Cole C O L C O A L, and see you all later. If you want to hear more, just philosophical discussion, particularly about this religious topic, then continue on in part two.